Um, instead, I want to do a brief overview of what the Bible teaches about women in ministry. This is not going to be all-encompassing, okay? And if you're going, whoa, 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 what, where did this come from? This, did this come out of the blue? It didn't. Um, recently, someone close to me invited me to watch and listen to a sermon from what I consider to be a solid Bible-believing church. And the pastor preached this sermon on a Sunday that they announced the first ever ordination uh, in that church of a woman as an elder. Now, to clarify on the front end of this, I did not agree with the primary conclusion of that message, okay? But it definitely made me think. And it gave me some, 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 uh, a different perspective to, uh, to kick around in my head about whether it's a sin to put yourself or your church in that position. And I started thinking about it, and I want to share some of, some of my thoughts with you because the same week I finished this sermon, I was studying for Acts 21, finished that sermon that, that, that I was talking about. I finished, uh, I studied Acts 21 to preach a sermon to you guys, and it had that passage that was uh, about Philip and his daughters, and it's regarding women exercising their gifting in the Holy Spirit. And it just, it seemed like God was leading me toward having that conversation with you all about women in ministry. And I do mean conversation, okay, because there's probably going to be some questions that you'll have after hearing this message. And the, the really cool thing is we're going to be right next door. So you can come talk to me if you have any questions. Um, just don't talk about me if you have any questions. Okay, come to me. Um, so I want to encourage you to ask those questions later. And, and I want to be very careful in saying this. I do not believe that where you stand on this issue has any effect as to whether or not you are saved, nor is it necessarily a reflection of your maturity as a believer. There are very sincere Christians that come down on both sides of this discussion. And then there's many that, are, that fit in somewhere along the spectrum. And speaking of both sides, if you look at almost any historical doctrinal debate, you're going to find there's a pendulum effect. And it happens both in society and in the church. And here's what I mean by this. If there has been a really heavy emphasis on one dominant point of view for a long time, if there is a weak spot found in that perspective, then the tendency is to just dump it rather than to try to modify it. And so the pendulum swings way past the point of balance, and suddenly the only acceptable point of view seems to be the complete opposite of the old one. And I believe that this has been the case to some extent with regard to women's roles in ministry. The issue really came to the forefront on the, the coattails of a cultural movement in the 20th century, and much of the church, which it had previously been um, what's called complementarian, which mean, it means men and women are equal, but have differing roles in the home and in the church. Um, that, that view in the course of time has begun to lean toward egalitarianism, meaning that, that men and women are not only equal, but have interchangeable roles in the family and in the church. And this morning, I'd like, to, I'd like for us to talk about what the Bible says about this, relying not on anyone's opinion, not relying on any uh, cultural um, for, uh, imposition, for lack of a better word, uh, but on the Word of God itself. And I want us to note both what the Word says and what it doesn't say. Okay? So if you would, this is our goal today. I want you to turn to Acts 21, please. Turn to Acts 21. We're going to look at verse 8. And nine. Nine is really where we're going to focus, but uh, you got to have the context of eight. <sighs> On the next day, 
we, that's Luke and Paul and his whole party, departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Will you bow with me? God, I pray right now, as I know this is a, a contentious and hotly debated topic, I pray for openness for each person here. Father, I know that there will be people on, uh, further than I am on both directions of this spectrum. And I pray, God, that you will help them to, uh, to listen carefully to what your word says and doesn't say. I pray, Father, for uh, unity in this congregation. I pray that this is not in any way uh, treated as a subject for discord, um, but for us to have an understanding of, of where the church is and, and where the Bible is. And praise you, Lord, that you, you are forgiving of us whenever we mess up, because I know that there's probably a lot of things that I don't have exactly right. Uh, Lord, but I know we're trying, and I know there are sincere people that hold different beliefs on this issue. Help us to be continually united in Christ wherever we stand on it. And I pray, God, that, uh, that your, your word today will ring out with truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so the main point when writing an expository message is to explore the content and meaning of the original passage and then determine exactly what was being said to the original audience and then apply that today, okay? While a textual question, uh, message, textual sermon is more likely to ask the question, what can we learn from this passage and not get as deep into the, uh, the, the language and all this? And normally I lean toward the former. Y'all probably know that. But um, we've already explored the context here in a previous message. That was, I think, two weeks ago, maybe three. So uh, what I want to do today is just dive right into what we can learn from this. The first question would be, what can we know from this passage? From this passage, Acts 21, 8 and 9. <laughs> what can we know? First, obviously, Philip was one of the original seven deacons from the, the early church in Jerusalem. We, we know this. We know from earlier in Acts that Philip was extremely evangelistic, and God used him mightily. He even got to experience a miracle or two, and it was really cool. And, and, and he was well-respected within the church. So that's the first thing. Secondly, we know that he had four daughters who prophesied. Now, the meaning of this term, prophesied, is often softened in our vernacular today because we, we sometimes refer to preachers as prophesying. You know, when you stand in the, in the pulpit, you're prophesying. That is not the best reflection of how the verse is used in the Old Testament. Or excuse me, in the New Testament, or the Old, necessarily. Um, when a person prophesied in the New Testament, it, it was often, though not necessarily always, in a formal worship setting, and it was a gift wherein the Holy Spirit would give a person something to say in the moment for the edification of other believers. Okay? It wasn't a matter of that person studying and compiling together you know, a manuscript. It was, it was typically either foretelling or forthtelling a revelation from the Lord. He would give it to them in that moment. We also know from Paul that the, the prophet is in control of that spirit to an extent. Like They don't have to just blurt it out. Okay, So we see this, this man, Philip, had four daughters who did this, although none of them were married. And this is important. I want to tell you why. Because they would have all been living in Philip's home with him. Okay? You, didn't, you didn't just go live by yourself. 
in that culture. If you were female, you stayed with your father until you got married. So these women were living in their father's house, unless you were a widow. And even then, sometimes you'd move back in with family. So uh, unmarried women who weren't widows lived with their parents and were considered under their father's authority. And we also know that Paul and his entourage stayed with them in their home. Now, these are all pretty clear facts from the Bible, okay? So we can see those four things. But there are also some educated guesses that we can surmise from this passage. Firstly, Philip, he was a highly respected deacon, had four daughters who prophesied, and thus it's pretty clear that women prophesying was considered appropriate in their church culture. You say, well, how do you know that? We'll get there. Nobody was concerned, okay, that, that they shouldn't be able to do that. And this fits in very plainly with how the Holy Spirit was poured out on both men and women at Pentecost and how they were prophesying, how they were speaking in tongues. Peter even quotes from the prophet Joel that God was fulfilling his word by putting his spirit in both men and women and that people's sons and daughters, their male slaves and female slaves, would prophesy. We can also presume that Paul had no issue with women prophets because if he did, he would not have stayed in their house. Now, this is very important, okay, for us to remember this because this is the same apostle that wrote some of the passages we're going to be looking at later this morning, okay? Some, some of the more egalitarian-minded Christians believe that Paul was a good guy. Not all of them, but some of them believe he was a good guy, but, but he was basically a chauvinist or that he was just mirroring uh, the culture, the, the patristic society of that time. And I can sort of see where they might feel that way, especially considering how some of our English Bibles translate some very specific sentences, and we're going to look at that shortly. But because I believe the Bible is God-breathed, I think that what Paul says is intended in his letters. It, it's for the, the instruction and the edification and the correction of those people and us. That's why we have them today. So I want to say that very clearly, what Paul wrote is for us to read too. Now I also think that the role of women in church and in ministry has been unnecessarily contentious over the years. And I want to address a few passages, I want to share some of the discussion with you guys, and then I'm going to tell you where I currently land on the issue. And I say currently because I've gone through a lot of periods in my life where I think about things and I study on things and I read the word with a specific focus in mind. And there have been at least twice in my life that God has changed my mind about something. So when it's an issue that is a little less black and white in the scriptures, I say this is where I stand right now. But I want to tell you that's where I stand and we'll get there later. Before we get into this though, I'm just going to tell you this. I am what would be considered a soft or moderate complementarian. Now, if you don't know what that is, that means that I believe that the Bible teaches that God created men and women as equal in worth, but with non-interchangeable roles in certain areas based on his created order. Okay? I also believe that hard complementarian churches might be missing opportunities to help women exercise their own gifting in the church. And that said, there are Bible-believing God-fearing, deeply conscientious Christians who disagree with me on this issue, the, both, both those hard complementarians I was talking about and those who hold the egalitarian view, and, and, and both of those sides will make a case from Scripture for what they say, okay? 
However, this is where my conscience currently rests. I do believe that my point of view reflects the biblical one. I think the Bible would be considered soft complementarianism. Um, but, again, if God's spirit in conjunction with his word convicts me, otherwise I'll probably let you know. Okay? But this is where I'm at today. So let's dive in. If those women, if they were prophesying, which we know they were because it says they did, a so-called hard complementarian might wonder, well, what about women being silent in church? Doesn't the Bible say that? Some of the English translations do. Let's look at the passage. This this is 1 Corinthians 14. I want to encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. Just kind of follow along because we're going to be in 1 Corinthians quite a bit. 1 Corinthians 14. Oh, by the way, I just wanted to say, I did not say this was going to be an extremely long sermon. I didn't. I said it's not going to be a short sermon. That's what I said, okay? So just be aware of that. Uh, So this is what it says, 1 Corinthians 14. He says, The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. My question is, how can a woman prophesy if they're supposed to be silent in church? Maybe that's not the best translation. Some of you are going to go, whoa, 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 Mark, are you, th- are you calling into question? Yes. I will call into question in several places in Scripture, the English translation. I'm really happy to tell you where they are. This is one of them. The Greek word that's translated silent, is the, it sounds so Japanese to me. It's the word segato-san. <laughs> that's the word. Segato-san. And it, it, it's kind of like saying, be still. Hush. Okay? It's not saying be silent. It's interesting to me that the King James Version says women keep silence in this passage, and then just a few verses up, the same Greek word, sagatoson, is translated very differently. If one prophet is prophesying and another starts, the first should hold his peace. Same word in one place translated hold his peace. In another word, another place, be silent. Why the difference in translation? Because, friends, silent means no sound. If you've ever driven down the highway, or perhaps more, (laughs) you know, if you've ever been in a plane, after a while, the engine sound gets a little, you know, it's there, but you kind of tune it out. Now, if that engine starts going, you're going to go, there's something wrong, and that's going to make you a little nervous, right? But if it's silent, that's really bad, (laughs) okay? There's a difference between smoothly running quietly like it's supposed to and silence. I just want to point this out. Another issue with how many English Bibles render this passage, the word translated to speak both times is the word lalain, which in Greek is the present active infinitive tense of the verb. It doesn't signify an end to the action, okay, of, of speaking or talking. So it's likely that Paul was addressing consistent and disruptive talking by these particular women that he's addressing during a worship service. Worship is intended to be orderly, right? And it's important for us to note, this is super important, Corinth was the first all-Gentiles, all-the-time church that Paul started, okay? And it was in a female-dominated culture because the temple of Aphrodite was in this culture. 
It's been estimated that there were up to 2,000 prostitute priestesses who served at that temple, and they were very domineering in the idol worship. They were very much in charge. And so when a lot of these prostitute priestesses converted to Christianity, a lot of these women were unused to the idea of male headship. And some of them would have had a really hard time making that transition. And also it helps explain a passage we're about to look at. But we see two things at play, at play here. One is the English translation could be better worded, okay? And two, having a window into the culture helps us to understand what Paul was specifically dealing with. So women are not supposed to refrain from speaking altogether. That doesn't make sense at all with the rest of Scripture because, in fact, in that very same epistle, Paul talks about women praying and prophesying in worship. You understand that? How can you be silent if you're praying and prophesying? Not the best English translation. This is also a confusing passage, so flip back to uh, 1 Corinthians 11. I'll tell you something really interesting. Now, I don't know if it was just because Facebook talks to Google and, you know, and Google talks to DuckDuckGo or whatever, but I was doing a lot of searching about head coverings and about other things in Scripture. I was like, so what are these points of view? Let's study that. Let's look into this. And so on Facebook, a guy that I almost never talked to, a pastor that used to be out in Texarkana when I was out in Texarkana, he posted something about why doesn't anyone ever preach on 1 Corinthians 11. This is after I finished the manuscript for this sermon. He says, especially the first 16 verses. And I think he's a little more hardline than I am, but I responded, actually, I'm preaching on that this week. But I told him... Um, I didn't say, I don't want to have an argument with you in public, but I said, if you want to talk about it, message me. So he did. And he asked some really good questions. If we're going to say this is cultural, where do we draw the line at what is cultural in Scripture? It's a hard line to draw. We're going to, we're going to talk about that. So, so just keep following with me. I promise this is, this is going to be a little eye-opening and also maybe a little scary. So um, this, is, this is a confusing passage. But I want you to see this for yourselves. It's not going to be on the screen. So I want you to, to look at 1 Corinthians 11 in your Bible, okay? Paul tells the church, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife, literally the translation says, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the, shame, excuse me, it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now back then, that was a sign of an adulteress or a prostitute, to shave your head. For a wife will not, If a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man, I'm going to say this again. This is Paul, so hold on to your tomatoes, okay? Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Boy, is that a bizarre statement, because of the angels. Not going to get into that today. Sorry. Um, I'm just going to say that's weird. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. 
For as woman was from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, literally that word in Greek is a flip, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such other practice, nor do the, the, the churches of God. You might wonder, why did I read that whole section if the point were simply to show that women were allowed to pray and prophesy in a worship service? Here's that. Here's, here's the, the answer to that question. Because Paul mentions women praying and prophesying in service as kind of a given. While at the same time, he uses the immediately relevant issue of head coverings to give an amazing exposition about God's created order of male headship. And then he explains that's why these women need to show submission to the headship within their home and within the church. Now, there is a ton of backstory to this. And I don't want to get too sidetracked by it except to say these, these former priestitutes, that's what my dad calls them, uh, they would have been accustomed to shaving their head as a phallic symbol in the worship of Aphrodite. And in that day, women who didn't wear, this is their culture, women who didn't wear head coverings to show submissiveness to their husbands were essentially flaunting their sexual independence. It was a form of what we would call gender bending. Okay. Likewise, men who were malakoi, means intentionally feminized men. The word literally means soft, okay? Um, they would wear long hair in a flip because it was their way of, of expressing publicly that they were homosexual men who were willing to play the female in a couple. And this helps us understand a lot about Paul's comments to this culture about long hair and shaved heads. It made a lot more sense to the intended audience. Now that said, when a Christian with a sensitive conscience reads that passage, we're likely to say, wait a minute, why don't we do head coverings today? And that is a great question. And after a lot of, of study and a lot of consideration and a lot of praying for wisdom, I'm about 60% convinced, okay, that this is an example in Scripture of a societal context intended to represent a scriptural concept. In the case of the church at Corinth, wearing head coverings was a sign that Christian women made. They would do this as a, as a representative of the biblical standard of male headship in the home and quite possibly in the church as well. I mean, otherwise, why, why would Paul appeal to the order of creation as well as to the voluntary submission Within the Godhead, the authority of the Son, of the Father over the Son. Again, Christ is the head of the church. The husband is the head of the wife. Uh, and literally, the Greek could mean man is the head of woman, although I believe it's referring to marriage. And God is the head of Christ. Does that mean that Christ is inferior to God? No, of course not. Does it mean that women are inferior to men? No, of course not. Now, if you're still wondering whether we ought to have men or women, uh, excuse me, we ought to have women cover their heads when they pray or prophesy, I would not be opposed to that just to stay safe. <laughs> but 
But I'll tell you this. I think Paul's point was to have a posture of humility in deference to God's created order of authority and submission. If we get hung up on the symbol, I think we might miss the point. There are some other examples of this. Uh, We're told to greet one another with a holy kiss four times in four different Pauline epistles. It's in the imperative tense every time, meaning it's a command. And yet, our culture has substituted a holy kiss for a holy handshake or a holy hug. Is that right? I don't know. We are told to wash one another's feet. Some church of brethren churches still do that today. We express our willingness to serve one another in more culturally relevant ways. Now, are we right to substitute like this? Again, I don't know. I'm I'm still trying to process that one. But anyway, I hope this has shed some light on a couple of the more difficult passage, um, you know, in the Bible passages that can turn off an egalitarian person. But then I want us to I want us to go the other way for a moment. Okay. One of the passages that's often quoted by egalitarians is Galatians three twenty eight, which says, "In the kingdom of God, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free." Male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So then the question is asked, okay, are men's and women's roles interchangeable with regard to spiritual authority? I believe the Bible teaches clearly the answer to that question is no. Not as clearly as I'd like, though. I'll tell you that. Because I struggle with this one. And I'm going to show you why in just a few minutes here. I want us to look at a a more difficult passage. This is... uh, I know you got another one? Yeah, another difficult passage. 1 Timothy 2 says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now again, Paul refers back to God's created order as a template for male headship. And then he flatly states, he does not allow a woman to teach. And in context, he's talking about teaching a man, nor to hold authority over a man. And in some places, that's translated usurp authority, which is certainly possible from the Greek. Okay, that's two different things. You got to be aware of that. Now, to be fair, this is important. This is why I say I wish it was a little clearer. Paul does not say, God does not allow a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Paul says, I do not allow that. I think that's important to note. And it is for this reason that I can agree to disagree with brothers and sisters in Christ who have female elders without thinking that they are in sin for doing so. But the rest of what Paul says here indicates that just like in the family, I think he's saying he believes spiritual headship or authority is God's design and ideal for the male in the family and in the church, which is not conducive to the idea of women as elders or as teaching pastors in the church. And I believe that Paul's instructions here and elsewhere set a precedent for male headship in those two specific areas, the church and the family, but not in the workplace, not in the government, not necessarily in any other area. We only see it in the family 
and we see it in the church. Now, on the other hand, Paul's statements about women not teaching nor having authority over a man is apparently intended in a church worship setting, clearly not at all times. And here's what I mean by that. Nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere, do we see a biblical precedent for a female elder in a church. Nowhere. Nor do we find a a woman officiating in a corporate worship service or teaching men. We never see that. That's the job of a a pastor teacher, which is an elder. However, (laughs) we can't ignore some other obvious things. It wasn't in a church worship service, but we see Priscilla and Aquila both taught Apollos. And Priscilla's mentioned first. Those those two are, are mentioned four times in Scripture. Two times Aquila is mentioned first. Two times Priscilla is mentioned first. She was obviously a strong personality and a very capable person. Eunice and Lois, that's two women, taught Timothy the gospel before he ever met Paul. Who are they? Do you remember? His grandmother and his mother. That's right. In Titus 2, women are encouraged to teach one another, especially older women teaching younger women. And elsewhere, we see that that women ought to be evangelizing their unsaved husbands and be teaching their children, and they're encouraged to share the gospel outside of the formal church setting. Those are all things that women not only can do, but should do. And what about a new culture where there's no established church? Should women act as missionaries? I'm going to tell you one thing. You know the story probably. When a group of women's husbands in the 1950s went to go teach a group of South American, uh, basically Stone Age peoples about Christ, those men, all of them, were murdered by the natives. So their wives, by themselves, well, they weren't by themselves, were they? They had the Holy Spirit. But those wives went into that same culture and led them to salvation. The widows led the murderers of their husbands to salvation. Pretty sure God had a hand in that. Elizabeth Elliot. If you ever, Tom sends me 50 quotes a week, probably, (laughs) via text. A lot of them are by Elizabeth Elliot. She's brilliant. Amazing woman. Anyway, to get back on point, there, there is no biblical precedent for women elders at all. There just isn't. But what about his deacons? Now, the Greek word diakonos means minister or servant. And I want to make a solid distinction here, okay? The other words for elder in in the Bible, what we see used for elders, are shepherd and overseer, which relate to their spiritual authority in and over a congregation and the care of individual souls, okay? But a deacon is placed in charge of a particular physical ministry that serves the church at large. I think this has become confused in today's church politic because some denominations say their only elder is the preacher. And then they call their elders deacons. And that gets really confusing, okay? That's not the biblical model. Essentially, deacons are ministry leaders. We have male and female ministry leaders here at Crossroad. 
And in my opinion, as is practiced within our church, the Bible allows for women in ministry leader roles. And I want to very quickly make a case from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 8. These are the qualities that Paul lists for deacons, okay? He says, deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve um, Excuse me, serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, that's the the whole chunk. I want us to focus on that middle section right there, okay? Because there's a little tension. He says... Their wives, likewise. Okay, I want you to, to look. I've got these, these things bold up here, okay? Their wives, likewise. People who believe that only males ought to be deacons often rely on that statement. They say, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. You see that That's the, at the bottom there, that bold? They point to that and they say, well, that means he has to be male, okay? It's also a quality that's listed of elders. So a lot of people say, well, if you have female deacons, you have to have female elders because it says in both cases it has to be a male of one wife. I'm going to submit to you, we have biblical evidence for deacons that a, being a male is the rule, but not necessarily uh, without exception. It's important to note the Greek phrase, this is really important, bear with me. The Greek phrase translated their wives literally says the women. That's interesting. That's interesting because once again we see what seems to be a little bias of translation creeping its way in here. There is no, if you look at the Greek, there is no possessive article to say there. Yes. It doesn't say anything about elders' wives. Yes, it says the exact same thing. It does not say anything in the section of elders about their wives. I think that's a good question because I'm going to address it in just a minute. So I love it. Thank you for raising your hand and for having a question. Yeah, man. Yeah, this, guys, if it's not disruptive, feel free. I mean it because this is a difficult subject. Um, So there's no possessive article that indicates he's talking about their wives. So I think he's talking about the women. Why would Paul refer to the deacons' wives but not have any qualifiers for elders' wives? It doesn't make sense. I think he's referring to a subset of servant leaders within the church who are female. Now that in itself would probably not convince me over the whole husband of one wife thing except that in Romans 16, Paul refers to our sister Phoebe, who is a deacon, diakonos, same word, of the church at Chancre. Let me read you this this glowing commendation that Paul gives her, and along with a few more verses. You, You can see the Reader's Digest version on the screen. I didn't want to put the whole thing. I just put some of it. But I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Chancre, or, yeah, excuse me, 
uh, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Remember the passage that Dana read earlier. Women supported Jesus' ministry. It wasn't the apostles. It was a group of women who were supporting Jesus' ministry. He says she was a patron he says, greet Prisca and Aquila, another place where we see Priscilla mentioned first. My fellow workers in Christ Jesus who risked their necks, that's where that phrase came from, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epineatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, another woman, who has worked Hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia. It's interesting. That was translated Junius as a male name for years and years and years in the King James. and law. But that's not what the Greek says. This is a woman he's talking about. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They were well known to the apostles. Oh, excuse me. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Do you see all of these women who served the Lord by serving their churches and evangelizing. So friends, let's be clear what Paul is not teaching. Okay, Clearly, he is not a misogynist. All right, Neither is God. I think it is plain that, that Paul greatly appreciated these women and appreciated their contribution to him and to Christ. Secondly, he is not making value judgments about women as though they have any less intrinsic worth than men. Men and women are partners in the gospel and joint heirs in the life of Christ. And he is also not making a statement about either sex's label or excuse me, level of capability. Now frankly, I think everyone in here knows at least one or two women who could hypothetically serve very well in the capacity of elder or even as preacher. And I guarantee you Paul knew some. If it were not for Paul consistently appealing to God's creation design for male headship, and if there were even one exception in the New Testament of a female elder, I would probably lean toward the idea that God approves of that. As it is, I'm still not convinced. I'm not convinced that God approves of that. I don't think that's the case. So let me give you my summary conclusions as we wrap this up, okay? In the official worship gathering of the church, there is scriptural precedent for women praying, prophesying, and exercising tongues where appropriate. Singing and the reading of scripture are not mentioned one way or the other with regard to gender in the conversation, okay? Um, there's a caveat. Timothy was instructed to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, but that he doesn't say anything about other people, okay? There also appears to be scriptural precedent for a female deacon and possibly a female apostle, Junia, along with her husband. Paul's statement that he does not allow a woman to teach a man and his references to male headship indicate to me that women are not intended to be elders in a local church body. And please refer back to what Paul is not saying. And remember, this is, this is not an issue of chauvinism or some man-centered oppressive patriarchy. This, it's about the created order. It's about God's assignments of roles within the church. 
and also within the family. I'm going to go on record as saying my belief is that outside of a worship setting, and by that I mean a formal one, or, or any official spiritual leadership role over men in the church, other than that, I believe a woman can exercise her gifting in any way that a man can, with some limitation in the husband-wife setting. And that's a whole other sermon. So before we close, I want to share with you something my father told me last week as we were discussing this subject, because as you know, when it's a difficult one, I usually hit up my dad. You know, not just this one, but the one that's way over there somewhere. Um, he said that submission is not a top-down thing. And this is super important, because too often people try to force others into submission. We see that in, in more hardline complementarian families a lot of times, even though that's not what their church necessarily teaches, a lot of the men are tyrants in those families, and they feel like they have to browbeat their wives and treat them a certain way. That is, that is wrong, okay? That's wrong. You cannot force someone into submission. You, you can change their behavior, but not their attitude. Submission is a bottom-up thing. Submission is a decision of the will made by one person to subject him or herself to another. And it is not for women only, but for all Christians to practice with regard to one another. Ephesians 5.21 very clearly tells us this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Even in a church leadership scenario, even in a husband-wife situation, there is a principle of mutual submission. One of the commentators I read... Um, he likened it to when a king is crowned over a people. He says, a good king will submit to the needs of his people just as the subjects submit to his authority. Does that make sense? Subjects submit to the king's authority. King submits to the subject's needs. And I think we all know a king who did that really, really well. The greatest submission story ever is when God the Son submitted to God the Father in giving up his life so that we might be saved. His death on the cross and resurrection from the dead is the epitome of a humble and submissive spirit. And so, friends, I want to end with this passage. This is a familiar passage from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know where this is going, right? Who, although he did not consider equality with God a thing to be clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has exalted him highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and all God's people said, Amen. This morning we, we breached a very difficult subject. And I probably didn't cover it as fully as you'd like. <laughs> and you may disagree with some of my conclusions, and that's okay. You can still be my brother or sister in Christ and vice versa. 
But I think this is stuff that we need to, to look into because it comes up. But more importantly, we need to understand, by the way, next week we're going to be talking about mutual submission. It's going to be interesting. It's right from the passage in Acts. But I think it's good for us to understand how God designs things. It's for a reason. And we need to be submissive to God in his way. So this morning, if you are not submissive to God, if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, you've not placed your faith in him, you have a chance now.